0: Good morning. morning, Thank you, worship team, for leading us to praise our Savior and His amazing grace. We're now going to take some time to look at God's Word and to hear from Jesus Himself and what He has to say to us. And as we read His Word, we're going to see how what He says sometimes seems to be running against where the rest of the world is. If you remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in the year, we talked about how this seems to be an angry time. And a couple of weeks ago, we were doing a series looking at some questions, and we were talking about people seem to be angry. There's a lot of anger. There's confusion. And in a world of anger and confusion, we may be tempted to pull inwards, focus on ourselves. If if what I see outside in the world, if what I see online, if that's going to make me angry, then I'll just disengage and not have anything to do with it. If there's somebody who disagrees with me, it's much easier if I just ignore that person, if I pretend they or their point of view doesn't exist, and I can live in my world, and they can live in their world, and then we'll both be happy there. I actually read a survey recently that kind of said this is what a lot of people are doing. So this was a survey from Christianity Today. They were quoting something from the Pew Research Group. And this group did a survey of people who say they're going to be voting this November. And of people who say they are voting, 78%, 78% of people say that very few of their friends are voting for someone different than they are. So 78% of people say they have very few or almost no friends who are voting differently than they are. And that that tells us a couple things. It tells us, one, that we make friends with people who typically think the same way we do, but it also tells us that we don't often spend time. With people we disagree with. If somebody disagrees with us about politics or life, we we don't spend much time with people like that. We don't consider them friends, generally, or the majority of people do, do not. But there's a problem if we're a Christian and that's the way we live. And the problem is Jesus has said we are to share his good news with the world. And that means getting to know, being friends with people who think differently than we do. Jesus calls us to a different way Of interacting with others. How we treat people matters. Even when we butt heads on political issues, or even if they just cut you off pulling into the highway, how we treat other people matters. And for that matter, I, I find it very interesting that it's truly remarkable now that what used to be called basic human decency or good manners, that's now something radical. Can you believe this person did something nice? Wow. But from Jesus, we can learn the value of how we treat others. We can learn the value of treating others with honesty, and in fact, treating them better than they deserve. If you would, if you're not already there, either in the Bible that you have on your phone or that you brought with you, it will also be on the screen, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 42, picking up on the Sermon on the Mount. And once you are there, I'd ask that you please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along as I read our passage for today. Matthew 5, 33 through 42. Jesus speaking says this. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Let's pray. Lord, in a world filled of anger, help us to focus on you. God, teach us this morning how we are to treat other people, even those we disagree with, even those that we struggle with. God, help us to learn how to treat others with honesty and how to treat them better than we think they deserve. God, help us to seek to encourage others to help others, to deal with them truthfully and honestly so that they may come to know you. God, use us for your kingdom because that's the way you treat us. That's the way you treat us through the work of your son who loved us when we were far from you. Thank you for his work and his grace. May he be our focus. May he increase in our time together. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so if you remember, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a message that Jesus is giving. He's speaking to people who are following him, and he's explaining what life in his kingdom looks like. Particularly, he's saying that his followers should be people who have exceeding righteousness. Their righteousness, their goodness should be above and beyond anyone that they see around them. They should have exceeding righteousness righteousness. And in this part of the sermon, he's going through God's law and he's talking about the law has said this, but this is how it really should be lived out by people who are a part of my kingdom. He's talked about laws about anger, lust, divorce, and he's kind of moving from things that happen inside of us in our heart, like anger and lust to our family. Divorce would certainly impact that, but now he's expanding it to all other people. How do we treat others? And the first lesson that Jesus gives us is that believers should treat others with honesty. We should treat others with honesty. I just read 33 to 37, so I'm not going to do that right now, but we'll talk about it. And he unpacks, though, what this means to treat others with honesty. And what it means is, first of all, that we do not mislead others. We don't mislead others. If we're going to treat people with honesty, we do not mislead them. He says in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said, it was said to those of old, to our ancestors, the ancients, you shall not swear falsely, you shall not break your oath, but you shall perform, fulfill, you shall carry out what you have sworn, what you have vowed. Here, Jesus isn't really quoting one particular place in the Old Testament, but he's paraphrasing something from God's law. He's paraphrasing things about oaths or swearing, like this passage from Leviticus 19.12 which says you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your god i am the lord god is telling his people you shall not swear falsely not say by god i will do this you shall not do that and then fail to carry it out god has always wanted his people to avoid lying and so he says you shouldn't lie you shouldn't tell something that's not the truth and so the oaths you give should be taken seriously There's many passages that talk about this. I just picked out one other one that I thought was interesting. This is from Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5. It says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. That's making it very clear. If you're swearing something for God, that is serious. That's what the Old Testament is talking about. And we see here that dishonesty in public life is not something new. If you think people are just lying more now, no, it's existed for thousands of years. Sinful humans have always been very good at lying. And the way this worked it's out in Jesus' day was the religious leaders twisted what the Old Testament was saying. The Pharisees or other Jewish religious leaders, they said, well, if you swear an oath, but that oath doesn't mention God then you don't have to do it because what it says here is if you vow, vow to God. So if you vow to God, then yes, but if you don't vow to God, then you don't have to do it because it's not in his name. Your oath would not be binding. We're not going to look at it, but later in Matthew, in Matthew 23, Jesus talks about how ridiculous this, this actually got with, with them. I'll just glance at it quickly. He talks about if somebody swears by it's nothing if they say, I swear by the temple, but if they swear by the gold in the temple, then that's binding. Or if they say, I swear by the altar, then that's not, but if you say, by the gift of the altar, then that's valuable. They were using loopholes to get out of telling the truth. You had to be honest with God, but it's okay to lie to others. And we may look at that and say, that's ridiculous. What are they doing exploiting those little loopholes there? That, that's crazy. We'd never do something like that. But if we're honest with ourselves, we often use technicalities to excuse our sin. I know I reacted angrily to that person, but you see, I was tired, so it's not my fault. I know that I was a little harsh in that conversation, but I was hungry, so, so God can't hold me to it that much. I know that was a lie, but it was only a white lie. I'm not cheating on my spouse. I'm just texting this other person. I, I'm not cheating. I'm just looking at things, pictures online, The problem, though, with looking for loopholes is it's the opposite of the way God expects us to live. He doesn't expect us to figure out how can I avoid doing what's wrong. He wants us to live with a passionate pursuit for doing what is right, a passionate pursuit for living for him. Now, there's other ways we can mislead as well. We can mislead by exaggerating something and by exaggerating in a way to put ourselves in a better light. This might be more of a... I'm not saying it's exclusively this, but it may be more of a male problem than a female problem. I know on the... Uh, some people used... Uh, the, the, we have these little accountability cards that some groups use, particularly the, the men's studies groups, and one of the questions on there is, have you told any half-truths or outright lies putting yourself in a better light than those around you, is what it said. And the first time you look at it as a guy, you're like, well, I don't do that. And then you... <laughs> And then you find yourself that week saying, what did you do this week? Oh, I worked hard on this thing. It took me an hour and a half. When you know it only took you an hour, why did you add that extra half hour? You know, it's just because you wanted someone to think a little better of you that you were working a little hard. You're misleading so other people see you in a better light. So Jesus' advice is don't take don't, an oath, don't swear, don't make an oath at all. And his reasoning is that God is over everything. God sees everything. He relates to everything. So any oath, anything you say is binding. As he talks about in our passage, he says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, because that's where God's throne is. Don't take it by the earth. That's God's footstool, his creation. He rules over it. Don't do it by Jerusalem. That's the city where God's temple is. And don't do it by your head because your life belongs to God. Or in his words, he says, you cannot make one hair white or black. And we may wish that we could at will just tell our hair to change color. And I realize we have products and things that do that. But we can't just think it and let it pop there. Like, no gray, not today. There you go. Okay, now, now it's good to go. It would be nice if it was true. I know when I go to the barbershop, I swear they're just sprinkling gray hairs in there because that all can't come from me, so I don't know what they're doing. But what he says is don't swear by God or swear by anything in his creation. The point he's really saying is there should be no need for you to take an oath to swear by something in your ordinary, everyday conversation. You shouldn't need to swear by something. You should remember this. This is what scholar Danny Aiken says. He says, everything you say, do, and think takes place before the watchful eye of an omniscient, that means all-knowing, and sovereign, all-in-control God. And God takes with greatest seriousness the words that come out of your mouth. The Lord hears every single one of them. There's not a place in our life where, okay, God's in this part of my life, but over here I can say what I want. No, he hears everything that we say. So Jesus' advice, what he says is don't take an oath. Now, when he says that, he's talking about daily ordinary conversation. He's not necessarily talking about don't testify in a courtroom. There's some faith groups that say that. They take this passage and they say, I will not swear an oath in a courtroom. I will not swear to the arms, not join the armed services because then I'd have to swear an oath to be a part of that. I think that's pushing a bit about what's said here. This is about we shouldn't mislead others. We shouldn't use oaths in our daily personal conversations. The problem with that other interpretation is if you just think it's saying don't take an oath in a courtroom, but you go to courtroom, you refuse to take an oath, but you lie when you're on the stand, then you're kind of missing the point. You're not fulfilling what is there just because you're not swearing an oath. So instead of misleading, Jesus is calling his people to be truthful and reliable. Don't mislead, but be truthful and reliable. In other words, he's telling them to have integrity, Or in the words of verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, from the evil one. He's saying you should respond to questions. When somebody asks you something, respond with yes or no. If someone asks you to do something, respond with yes, I will do that. Or no, I will not do that. Because anything more than that Anything different from that, anything that's vaguer than that, is probably coming from our own desire to make ourselves look better, to give ourselves an out. But he says we should be men and women of our word. We should be known for our honesty. And this isn't new. Jesus is really just bringing out the truth that was already in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about this. The prophet Zechariah said this These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth. one another render or have in your gates judgments that are true and that make for peace do not devise evil in your hearts against one another love no false oath for all these things i hate declares the lord god's call is for us to speak truth to not scheme against other people We see this in the Old Testament, and Jesus' followers understood that. His half-brother James really understood what Jesus was saying, and he says it in a way that's probably more well-known to us. He says, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, believers should have no need to swear an oath in daily, ordinary conversation. Jesus' followers should have such a character that they don't need to swear an oath in order to be believed. When they say something, people trust that what they're saying is true, it's reliable, can be depended on. They don't need to swear to give it more validity. They should be altogether truthful. Truthful. And they don't do this because they feel they have to, but they do it because they know God sees everything they do. They know their whole life is lived before God and should be lived in honesty before him. They're reliable in what they say. God's followers, when they say something, it should be taken at face value. They mean what they say. They do what they say. Their yes is yes. Their no is no. But this kind of teaching that we have here, this is again, running contrary. It's opposite of the world we see around us. And as followers of God, we may say, yeah, that's wonderful. I will be honest. I will be true in what I say. But we need to be very careful that the influences around us don't influence us to live in a different way. Let me give you two examples. One is... And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but honesty is not really a priority for politicians. I, I don't know if that's a news flash to you, but it's, it's not really a priority. I don't care if your team's mascot is a donkey, an elephant, a pelican, or a flying spaghetti monster. Politicians will say anything to get your vote. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm not saying every single person, but generally speaking, they will do whatever it takes to get you to vote for them. And we can see that and say, yeah, shame on politicians. They're terrible people. But we need to be careful that that doesn't influence us because we also can fall into a similar temptation. We can be tempted to lie or to support a lie because it advances something we want. Well, I know what this person says is wrong, but I like what they're doing, so I'm going to parrot it. I'm going to say what they say as well. This thing, I don't think it's true, but this guy I like is saying it, so I'm going to believe that it's true. I'm going to tell others about it. We may lie to advance a political goal and friends that is not worth it supporting a lie is not worth whatever we'd achieve by gaining it another place where dishonesty can influence us is social media you won't find much honesty on social media in fact the social media algorithms that they have, the the way the social media works, the way your Facebook feed or Twitter feed works, is it's designed to affirm what you believe. It's not designed to challenge you. It's not designed to bring up something that will stretch you and grow you as a person. It's designed to affirm what you believe. It's designed so you say, yes, I like this. I'm going to click on this and read more about this. Yes, I'm going to like this thing. I'm going to support this thing. Now, it might be something that you say, whoa, that's really wrong. But again, it's designed for you to react harshly against it. The internet is designed to keep you clicking and ultimately seeing more ads and therefore spending more money. That's what it's designed for. The internet is not designed to tell you the truth. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad. I'm not telling you don't use it. I'm just saying understand what its purpose is. It's designed to get your money to affirm what you believe. Understand that what we see online is trying to manipulate us. So we should not fall into that as well. That's just a general word of Advice, encouragement, don't spread a story or something you see on social media unless you have double and triple checked that it is true. Because if you just share something, this sounds right, this sounds good, this sounds like something I believe in, the world is watching that. And in the circumstance where that probably doesn't turn out to be true, the world sees you and sees followers of Christ as a liar. We must tell the truth. The world is watching. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Speak the truth, for we are members of one another. Now, I could move on here, but since we're talking about lying, somebody's probably thinking of the objection, but pastor, yes, Jesus says we shouldn't lie, but what if you need to lie to protect someone? What if you're, the example they always give is, what if you're hiding Jews in your attic and the Nazis come to your door and they ask you, are you, you hiding any? Well, what I would say to that is, first and foremost, how often has that really come up in your daily <laughs> life? Um, in in the, this setting we are. I realize that it's happened in history before, but generally speaking, there are better ways to encourage someone than by lying to them generally speaking if we want to dive into the ethics and talk about a system of what we do in extreme circumstances okay we can have that discussion but jesus is talking about generally speaking the principle we should operate by is we should always tell the truth we can have debates about extreme circumstances but generally speaking in everyday life we should live to tell others the truth and if that's not radical enough Jesus then says we are to treat others not only with honesty, but we're to treat them better than they deserve. We're to treat others better than we think they deserve. I'm going to read the passage again, and then I'll put the slide back up. So this is uh, 538 through 42. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic or your inner garment, then let him have your cloak, your outer garment as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. His call is to treat others better than we think they deserve serve others sacrificially and what that means first and foremost is that we don't get even when someone has offended us we do not get even as he says you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth this was a principle that showed up throughout the old testament law but the reason it was there was to prevent an inappropriate punishment. The reason the law was there was to make sure that punishment fit the crime. If someone did this, they received an appropriate punishment. I'll give two examples of where it's from. One is in Exodus 21. This is actually a passage about if someone strikes a woman who is pregnant. And this is what it says. If there is harm, then probably meaning to the infant in her womb, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for strife. The punishment should fit the crime. You do this, this happens to you. Uh, Leviticus 24 also fleshes it out. It says, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. The reason this is here is because God knows well our human nature, really our sinful nature. In our human nature, when somebody does something to us, we get angry, we get upset, we want to get revenge and do something back. But we don't naturally think in terms of justice. We think we're upset. I want to get that person. I want to do something worse to them than they did to me. And so God gave these laws for a reason. He said, no, you don't do something worse. What the person has done, that's what is done to them. It's a law that was supposed to be imposed by the civil authorities. It was a law for the judges, those in control, to say, yes, this is the appropriate punishment. The law was not intended for individuals to get personal vengeance and revenge on someone. But that was the way the Pharisees seemed to have taken it. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they thought, well, if somebody does something wrong, then we have to drag the person around, we have to make sure they get the punishment That they deserve. That is our job. Anytime we see anything wrong, we have to make sure that it is punished. Instead, Jesus says to them in verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, the evil person. Again, just like the last one, we were talking about daily conversations. This is a focus on our individual conduct. This is not This is telling us to avoid violent aggression. It's saying, as an individual person, you should avoid responding violently or with aggression to others. It's probably a stretch to say this is Jesus talking about do not ever use force or ever that no government should use a war or something like that. That's a debate for another day and another thing. Jesus is focusing on our individual conduct as you, a person, avoid responding with violent aggression. And I think that's helpful, because if we want to have that debate, we can, but the truth is we're not going to solve all the big political issues of our day. Those of us in this room, the 100 plus whatever of us, we're not going to solve all the issues facing our country and our world in this room. But what we can do is we can make a difference in the lives of the people that we interact with. And when they see how we respond differently when we're wronged than other people do, then they'll wonder what it is that we have that they don't. Now the rest of the passage are illustrations of what this looks like. What does it mean to not resist the one who is evil? And so Jesus gives some principles of what it looks like. These are principles, they're illustrations. They're not specific rules that we follow or check. It's this is what it looks like to not resist in the way that I'm talking about. The first thing he says is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, or turn the other cheek. He's saying, get rid of your spirit of retaliation. Get rid of your desire to defend yourself, to avenge yourself on others. And this example he's giving is about a slap of insult. It's something someone would do in public, like, I can't believe you did that. It, it was intended to embarrass someone. I emphasize that because he's not talking about abuse, because abuse is tended to harm someone. This is talking about in a public setting, somebody has done something to embarrass someone. And again, it's not something Jesus is making up. He's getting this from the Old Testament. In the book of Lamentations, we read this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then he explains what that looks like in verse 30. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. So it's a passage like this that Jesus has in mind. He's saying if somebody strikes you trying to embarrass you, if somebody's insulting you, you should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. When someone attacks, don't go low in return. We see this in the New Testament as well. 1 Peter 3, 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing really what jesus is kind of speaking against is the idea of don't get mad get even that's not a christian response to an insult he's saying followers of him should not be mostly concerned with personal injuries insults yes when it happens it hurts but it shouldn't provoke an angry response we need to check our motives before we respond to an insult Jesus is saying, the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that is for the governing authorities. You are not responsible to seek justice for yourself through violence. The government executes justice, not you. One pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, he explores what this would mean for us. He says this, will anyone be won for the kingdom by your retaliation, by you standing on your rights? How could they be when the king in the kingdom is the one who did not retaliate. If we're representing Jesus, and we're like, I need to defend myself, then how are we really modeling him and the way he lived? When he took punishment and suffering for us, he sacrificed that for us. When we respond differently, people will say, there's something different about the way you respond. You're not rising to my level of anger and aggression. Why is that? Well, because I'm serving a different king in a different kingdom. Jesus's point is that we should be gracious. We should be gracious and we should be generous. We should be gracious, sacrificial, and generous when people treat us the way we don't feel we deserve. We treat them better than they deserve. We go above and beyond their expectations. The rest of the passage talks about this. Verse 40 says, if someone tries to take your inner garment, your tunic, your shirt, Jesus said, let them have the more expensive cloak the outer coat as well he's saying followers of me should not be obsessed with their legal rights now let me be clear what i'm saying there is a time and place for legal action i'm saying that i'm not saying lawyers are bad i'm not saying courts are bad i'm not saying there's never a case where a christian should be involved in a court case i am saying though as americans we talk a lot about our rights and as americans if somebody does something wrong we very quickly jump to well i'm going to sue you We very quickly think about there has to be a legal way for what was taken from me to be restored to me, for my rights to be vindicated. And this jump to the courtroom, this jump to sue others, that is not exactly scriptural. It's really not. It's not what Jesus is talking about. This verse, verse 40, also appears in the message. And the message is not a Bible translation. It's a paraphrase. Somebody is saying this is what it says in the scripture, but this is kind of what it may mean. And in this case, I think it it says it kind of well. It says, if someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. I think that's a good way to illustrate it because all this talk of tune it and cloak, we don't really know that, but there's an example. If they're trying to get something little, then consider giving something bigger. So on a personal level, we should not always insist on our rights. And note my phrasing, not always insist but we should think about what would be the best witness for Christ in this situation. What is the way I could respond that would make people see Jesus? And we should insist on the truth when it's an issue about honor or justice, when it's about righteousness. I would say especially when it's about another person. If we see another person that's being mistreated, then we should speak up for them, defend that person. If you're defending someone else's rights, then I would say go for it. If you're worried about defending your own rights, I think in terms of the Bible, you're on some shaky ground there. I'm not saying it's wrong, but the Bible doesn't talk about defending our own rights. It talks about standing up for the rights of others. Another illustration that he gives is if somebody forces or compels you to go one mile, then go with him two miles, a second mile, another mile. Again, saying go beyond what is expected. In this case, it was a reference to the world that Jesus' followers lived in. In this world, they were not citizens who could vote in an election. They were being ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had soldiers stationed throughout their territory. And a soldier could come up to any civilian and say, Hey, you, carry my stuff for a thousand steps. And that's why our translation does a mile, but it's, it's roughly a thousand steps. And you were legally obligated to carry that soldier's stuff for a thousand steps what jesus is saying is don't carry it and count 601 602 603 999 1000 boom there you go and walk off he's saying no go further than that continue to go with it keep going out of service for god he's really here criticizing some of the jewish revolutionaries of his day some of the, the Jewish rebels, they said, we should do whatever is necessary to resist, to tear down the Roman empire. So any way we can stick it to them, that's what we should do. Jesus is saying, we need to owe respect to whoever is governing us. And the same is true for us. We owe respect to those who are over us. No matter if we disagree and no matter who wins in November, we owe respect to the authority that has been placed over us. So what does this look like? Well, For example, it means that we should be honest on things like our taxes, that we shouldn't think about how can I cheat the government out of some more money that belongs to me. No, we should think about what is actually owed, what do I owe, and then do that. If we're in doubt, then maybe consider paying more because we do get tax refunds from things. And it also means we respect restrictions and things the government places on us. If you're going to a store and the store has a sign that says mask required, then please put on your mask before you go inside. I'm, I'm not saying that you have to agree with it. I'm not saying you have to think it's right, but that's not something to fight and argue about right there. Realistically, that store, there's probably nobody in that building who made that, that rule. It probably came from something above them, maybe a corporate office hundreds of miles away, and you causing a scene about it is not illustrating that God's truth and his kingdom I'm not telling you to have an opinion about whether right or wrong, but when there's some restriction that's placed on us, we try as much as possible to follow it, to stick with it. It's a conversation arguing that belongs elsewhere. Now, again, this is talking about in our normal daily life that's not prohibiting self-defense. It's not saying we should flee from someone who's trying to do evil to us. It's generally in our life we should model the example of Jesus. First Peter describes it this way, when he reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges justly. Jesus did not insist on his rights. He did not insist on justice for himself. He trusted God will bring final victory through my suffering. That is the model that we are to follow as much as possible In our lives. One scholar named Charles Quarles put it this way, never is the disciple more like the Savior than when he responds to abuses graciously and without retaliation. It's one of the greatest ways we can model Jesus. When somebody does something that we know is wrong and we say, I don't have to fight about this right now. We should make sure that our fights and our passion are reserved for biblical rights rather than something just personal About ourselves to borrow paul's words from the book of romans he says repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as it depends on you maybe something else will happen but as so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written god says vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord We can trust God to defend us. He will restore our our rights. He will bring justice, either in this life or in the life to come. Jesus' last illustration about this is in verse 42. He says, We should help those who are truly in need. This is what it means to do not resist. He says, Give to the one who begs from you or asks you. Do not refuse or turn away the one who would borrow from you. Basically, he's saying, we should give when we can, and we should give as much as we can to those in need. In our context, we often we say we should, but we're worried about giving money to somebody who doesn't deserve it or is going to misuse it, about somebody who's just lazy or trying to take money from themselves. And that's a valid concern. We need discernment. But sometimes we say that, and then we don't give when there is a genuine need. I think jesus's advice would be it's better to err on the side of giving than on the side of being careful Not that we shouldn't be careful and we should think carefully But generally it's better to err on the side of giving because if they're going to misuse it Then you're showing the same grace. God shows people who misuse his blessings To quote pastor charles spurgeon. He says be generous A miser is no follower of jesus It's not a word we use often, but it means someone who hoards money is not a follower of jesus And that that sometimes rubs against our, our understanding of how we're supposed to be living. You can be planning a really nice retirement for yourself, but if it keeps you from giving to a real need now, it will not be worth it. I'm not saying don't plan. I'm not saying don't have a financial thing. I'm not saying don't have a budget. Those are all wonderful things to have. But we should be aware of needs and opportunities to give to others. This is a wisdom matter. I'm not laying down rules. I'm not going to tell you, say, this is how much you should put for this amount in your budget and things like that. That is far beyond what I'm able to do. What I'm saying is Jesus is challenging us. He's challenging us to ask ourselves, am I a giving person? Do I just think about myself or am I a giving person? Yes, there are people who are trying to exploit others. And that's part of what's so great about being a part of a church family. We could say, this is a need that I know about, but I'm unsure of their motives. And we can ask other believers, say, what do you think? What do you know about this situation? It's one wonderful reason why we have the Holy Spirit and the work he does in our conscience. It could be, I don't know if I should do this. I don't feel comfortable with it, so maybe I shouldn't. Yes, we, we have those, those checks. We should be careful. But there's also opportunities to give. In Jesus' day, in particular, it was kind of an honor-shame culture. So if someone was begging, that was shameful. So very few people did it. And so that's why it was important for his followers to give. It was something commanded, actually, in the Old Testament, repeatedly. Deuteronomy 15 says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God is giving you, you should not harden your heart, you should not shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him. You shall lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. In fact, in the Old Testament, giving to others, giving to those in need, that was a sign. It was a mark of God's righteousness. It was something that defined someone who was righteous and living rightly before God. Two passages talk about this. Psalm 37 says, The wicked borrows and does not pay back. Yes, that happens. So the righteous person shouldn't give and be taken advantage of. No, it says, but the righteous is generous and gives. Proverbs says the desire of the slugger, the desire of the lazy kills him. His hands refuse to labor all day long. He craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. So even though there's wicked, even though there's lazy people, those who are righteous are defined by their giving. And it works out wonderful for God's people. It works out good for us in the immediate Uh, Psalm 112 says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Things usually work out for somebody who's giving. God works in their life. I'm saying generally, I'm not saying if you give, God will make you a millionaire, but I'm saying generally it works out well for people who are honoring God by giving. But it especially works out for us in eternity. Jesus talks about the last day, and he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And I don't have it, but the people ask, when did we do this? And he says, when you did it for the least of these, my brothers. You did it for me. And so a sign that we belong to God's kingdom, a sign that we're going to have the reward of being with him forever is that we show this love, this giving to the least of these. For believers in Jesus Christ, our lives are not supposed to be primarily about us. The problem is we want our life to be about us, but that is not the way our life is supposed to be. One pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this, as I understand the teaching of scriptures, holiness, living for God, It eventually means deliverance from this self-centered life. A self-centered life just focused on yourself, that's not growth and holiness. But as we know God, it's not that we neglect ourselves, but we care for others more. We seek how we can serve other people. The reason I have joy up on the screen is because a great model is the logo for our joy club we have here at church. Joy club is the group of our Uh, senior citizens who are here at the church and joy club is an acronym j-o-y and what it means is jesus first others second yourself last and i think that's the same point that jesus is illustrating here that we care for jesus honoring serving him first we seek how we can love other people and then we think about what do i need that seems to be the attitude jesus is calling for in this passage but this is very different and the way the rest of the world lives. The rest of the world lives, I, I guess, OJ or YOJ. or, or they, they live in a very different acronym of those letters. And so it's only Christians who can live this way with Jesus first, then others, then themselves. Our greatest desire should be to die to ourselves. Our greatest desire should be to know Jesus Christ. These words that we read from him are, are very strong. And this is not the only place they show up. These words from Jesus also show up in the Gospel of Luke. Luke mentions this same teaching. But what's interesting is he puts what we know as the golden rule immediately after the last part. So look at this, Luke six thirty and 31. 30 will sound very familiar. It says, give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This do unto others, this is a golden rule that every elementary school in the the country is is taught, something like this. And as Christians, we may say, yes, but God expects more of us than this, this golden rule. There's other things God tells us. He tells us to live certain ways. Those who are not Christian may say, your whole life should be about doing unto others, but then they don't define what it means. And we say, we have God's word. It tells us what it means. And it does. But God doesn't tell us to do less than do unto others. Sometimes we we criticize those who live by do unto unto others, but then we refuse to help other people. That's not something we should ignore. We serve others sacrificially. No matter who they are, where they're from, what they have done, we treat them better than they deserve. A couple verses after that, Jesus says this, but love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons, daughters, children of the Most High because God, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, next week, we'll go further into the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about loving our enemies. But here we see why we do this, why we give, why we serve others, why we don't retaliate, why we speak with honesty. We do it because God was kind to us when we were ungrateful and evil. We help others because God helped us eternally. He treated us far better than we deserved when he sent Jesus Christ. What we deserve when we sinned and rebelled against God, we deserve to be separated from him. We deserve hell, eternal punishment. But instead, because Jesus lived out God's law perfectly, because he died for what we have done, he's provided a way for us to know grace and forgiveness. Let me ask you, whether you're watching online or, or here, do you know that forgiveness that Jesus offers? Do you know that kind of goodness that he can give you that enables you to live this way? It's not something you can do of yourself. This is impossible by ourselves. But Jesus gives it to us if we have a relationship with him. That happens as we turn away from our sin and we believe in Jesus Christ and we trust in him. He provides a way for us to know God, to have a right relationship with him, even though we've sinned, even though we've fallen away from him. We can know God. I pray if you don't know that, that you will have a conversation with someone about how you can know that, or that you will call out to God yourself, say, God, I'm turning away from my sin, I'm believing in you for salvation. For those of us who are left, We should commit together to live for God. We should commit to living in honesty. We should commit to treating others better than ourselves. So let's take the time now to praise the one who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with him. Because him, Jesus Christ, he alone is worthy.